It is Tuesday, May 23rd, 2017, and this is Rapture Cast. Today we're going to be talking about episode 6 of season 3, Certified. This episode was directed by Carl Franklin. Before we get started, I just want to uh, offer a uh, quick plug for a mod post over on the Leftovers subreddit. Uh, there's a sticky on there for information regarding the National Suicide Hotline. This episode, we are going to be talking about uh, suicide quite a bit. That's That was the main theme in, in Certified. So uh, we just want everybody to know that resource is there. Um, if you ever feel like you need it, there's numbers to call. There's a website to go to. And there's r slash suicide watch if you are not in the United States. There's a bunch of resources there uh, where you can get help uh, internationally. Yeah, basically, we don't want to lose any of our listeners here on RaptureCast. This is a little bit of an interesting setup this week because I have not watched, I have not rewatched the episode. Um, and I also have something that might be a cold or, or something, something worse. I'm not sure. Common theme here, guys. Your man Adam yeah. rewatching the episodes, doing the hard work for Rapture Cast, and Will slacking. It has a yeah. cold. He has a cold. Rapture Cast waits for no one. <laughs> yeah, every my whole body's shutting down. So no, sorry um, to hear that, man. And I'm hoping hoping you'll feel better soon here. Yeah. So, but we're gonna get through this. Um, I got this. I got this Imperial Oatmeal Stout. I'm drinking. This is gonna get me through this episode. And, um, yeah, so let's, let's get started here. I know you, you're a little bit more prepared, but, um, honestly, this was a, this was a rough, rough episode for me. And I think that's part of the reason I, I maybe didn't do, uh, a second watch because there was, there was something really naturalistic about the way that suicide is depicted in this episode. And, um, I think it's one of the more difficult things to watch in, in this show, um, didn't, didn't have a lot of the sort of cinematic qualities that some of the other big emotional moments of the show have. It was just, uh, it was pretty bleak in, in some yeah. areas. So, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to toss this over to Adam and, uh, let you take us in. Yeah. So I guess let's just, uh, let's go with the cold open, um, which was, uh, um, what was it about two years after the departure, I think. And yep. uh, it kind of leads in with, uh, you know, actually a nice a nice callback to the woman in the parking lot. Right. We get to see yeah. her again. She was um, she was episode one, I, I want to say, of season one. I, I didn't go mm -hmm. back and check, honestly, but we got to see her early on. We see her again in the bar, too. Do we? I didn't know that. OK. Yeah, she's in the bar with um, uh, on the first. No, because uh, the first episode is the third anniversary, right? And she meets Kevin in the bar, and uh, ah. that's right before he hears the gunshot, goes outside and meets Dean for the first time. That's right. Yeah, good, good callback there. So yeah, we get to we get to see her again, which was really cool, and we get to see it from a different perspective, uh, learning all about kind of the heartbreak that ensued um, after the departure. One thing I really want to point out, and something that really kind of, um, uh, I guess uh, hit a hit a personal chord with me you know really kind of hit home was when she was talking about going back to the parking lot to wait for her departed child because yeah. if he's gonna come wow. back that's where he's gonna come back to and you know is he gonna be able to crawl is has he aged any just that whole 
that whole scene was, I feel like something that the show hasn't explored before, right? The idea of if people come back, where do they, you know, the logistics of it, right? The, the show often deals in, in a lot of kind of the abstract, but this, this particular moment was really like, well, if people come back, where are they coming back to? And so she goes and she waits in yeah. this parking lot, you know, every day. And to me that, that seemed like a really human response and, you know, like something that a lot of people would do. Right. I don't, I don't know why, but that, that particular scene really just kind of struck home with me. I thought about myself and I thought, you know, I feel like that is maybe how I'd even respond. And I tend to think of myself as a, a pretty, um, a pretty down to earth person, right. You know, by as far as, uh, analytical and such, but, um, that particular moment just really clicked with me as something no, that I feel actually, like I, I would do as well. I thought about you when I saw that scene because it kind of, it was outside of, of the parameter of what I feel like I could experience. I mean, you know, I'm not a parent. Um, you know, there are certainly people in my life that would obviously be devastating if they, you know, disappeared, but there's something, obviously something incredibly different about that person being, um, a child and especially a child young enough to be so completely dependent upon you. And if, really does make you ask the question like how how many how long would you stay in the parking lot and how many days afterwards would you go back to check how long would it take before it felt pointless i mean that's um like you said it's it's a it's a new thought they've introduced but at the same time it fits very well in line with what what the show's tried to do so far which is and to some extent, we didn't believe it. At least I, you know, I don't think we did when the show first started. When when Lindelof and Perota said, you know, the show's not going to be about what happened to the people, and there was always this sort of idea of like, well, you know, that's going to be the mystery. Eventually, they might tell us, and it's it's almost like when we watched uh, the first season of True Detective, and you know, we got sort of two thirds through the way through that season, and you caught it before I did that the show wasn't actually about um a murder mystery and, and yeah. it was actually about a relationship and that this is one of those moments where you're just reminded that the show isn't about um a bunch of people disappearing the show is about dealing with unimaginable and unexplainable and meaningless loss yeah and i think for anyone still watching the show hoping to get an explanation it, you know not turn yet. it off right uh spend your yeah. time watching something else it's it's not going to happen um i, I want to well, maybe Lindelof keep watching is, but just prepared to be disappointed yeah maybe that um but lindelof has said he's not going to explain the great departure it's not what it's about it's what it's never been about i feel like true detective maybe it wasn't as clear that it wasn't going to be about um the murder the murders whereas right. i feel like the leftovers kind of from the get-go i Lindelof has done a really good job in, in interviews and such of being upfront about the fact that he's not going to explain the departure and that the show isn't about the departure itself or what happened, but more so about how people react to it. Right. Right. And I mean, you know, I don't want to get too far into true detective, but I do think there's, there is an overlap here in the sense that they're both making the point that the universe is not just, and it doesn't care about you. And when things happen that seem meaningless, uh, in some context, 
they are when something is unresolved or, or unrequited or, or uh, devastating. I think it, the, both shows tried to make the point that it's incumbent upon us to, to provide meaning that allows us to continue to live and continue to, to have a meaningful life. And that, that describes Lori. I mean, that's what this, this whole episode is about is how Lori went from something less than a person to being able to provide, uh, to, to, to be a meaningful, uh, force in other people's lives. And in, in, in a lot of respects, a force for good eventually. Yeah, uh, very much so. And it, it obviously is an episode that focuses a lot on Lori. Um, so let's just uh, let's move on a little bit more forward, a little bit forward in the episode here, and talk about uh, the first suicide scene in the episode, mm-hmm. in an episode that features arguably many. And right. um, uh, so initially, you know, after after she uh, speaks to the woman in the car, she takes a bunch of pills, tries to off herself, and then and then changes her mind uh, feasibly to to join the gr um do you think that was her mindset actually that's that's what i'd love to get you know more discussion on is it's like what is she thinking when she takes the pills she leaves the note takes the note back lays down and then changes her mind what's going through her head at the in these scenarios yeah unfortunately i don't have a great takeaway here really um i wish i did but honestly it just it seemed like kind of a, a panic, right? She panics and realizes that, you know, she doesn't want to do this after all. And mm-hmm. maybe, maybe takes into account what the woman in the off, what in the woman in her office had just said, which is that those, you know, those people out in white will tell her, they'll at least write down what to do. And so maybe yeah. she feels like at this point, you know, she's come, She's so low, but maybe she feels like the GR offers some sort of alternative because she walks out there, right? And she says, tell me what to do. So right. my only takeaway, and it's it's very surface, is that she sees the GR as, you know, a, a possible option, you know, as maybe having a solution for her grief at this point in time. But I'm interested to hear what you think because I, I feel like mine is very surface and just kind of what you get from that scene. No, I don't think that's far off. Uh, I, I don't think it mattered that it was the GR, though. I think... I think the Agreed. Fact it that it theoretically could be anything, right? I mean, the GR could right. also have been, a, you know, a meth dealer or a, a bottle of bourbon, right? It's Right. I, I think the fact that Lori is a therapist is a huge part of her character. And... The fact that, you know, we learned later in this episode through like a throwaway line that um, she was the sole breadwinner in the house, or at least the primary uh, primary income. And she's a therapist and, you know, she has this, there's a, there's a sense of responsibility with her that, that I think becomes uh, a burden. And she's also uh, a mother and... I think this was Lori. I think initially she thought she wanted to die. And I think laying there on the couch, she realized she didn't want to die. She just 
didn't want to be Lori. And so she doesn't care really what the GR is, is offering or, or even or who it is. She just wants to not be Lori anymore. She doesn't want to be responsible for her family or for money or for other people's pain. She just doesn't want to be anything. I like that. That's a good take, especially it ties in nicely to a profession, right? Yeah. And kind I think of her so. character as a whole, especially this season of being kind of the, uh, the sensible one in the last couple episodes. Right. And it's, it's, it's so bizarre now how, you know, starting the first season of the show, the GR is just sort of the weirdest thing you can imagine. And now that we're getting close to the end of all of this and, and uh, the sixth season of the third episode or the sixth episode of the third season, um, the GR seems, I don't, I don't know. It seems sane to join the GR to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, given what else has been kind of pitched this episode, right? That Kevin's going to let them drown him and he's going to go on this kind of wonderful wizard of Oz quest right. to, uh, to get an assortment of things that sounds and like just, a, fetch quest out of like zelda <laughs> right and not even just the fact that like there's all this weird shit going on with kevin but looking at nora's story throughout this um i don't think the gr seems strange and i think nora would agree um and i know we're, we're you know this is jumping around a little bit but um I, I i have a thought about nora as it relates to this because one of the first things or one of the last things we get from her in this episode is this story she tells. And I really want to talk about this story um, about her being at a baseball game. Oh, okay. We're really jumping around. Um, yeah, let's, let's do it. And then we can get back on track afterwards. This, this scene was amazing by the way. And it was just, yes. just crushing. And again, Carrie Coon is just an amazing actress. And I really, I really Absolutely. loved it, but yeah, dive in, take us through this. Yeah, so this whole episode was really nonlinear. This whole podcast is going to be really nonlinear. We're going to jump around a little bit and uh, can try to mirror mirror the framework they set up. Um, so <laughs> I like it. Okay, let's go with it. So I think this scene tells us a lot about Nora and who she is. And um, this is, again, a bit of an interesting episode because Adam and I haven't actually got a chance to discuss any of this beforehand. We kind of just... Uh, it's been a busy couple uh, days since Sunday. We yeah, I guess this is the first time we've talked since Sunday night. Um, yeah. We both had a pretty busy Monday, and now it's Tuesday evening. So It goes by so fast. So here's the thing. Nora is a character who has virtually no growth and seems to be in this kind of... Um, I don't know if my math terminology is right, but I think it is perpetual recursion because from the very beginning, we see her desperately want to believe in something and then believe in something. And then the belief falls apart. And that is a pattern that's been repeated with her over and over again, whether it's Wayne or it's Lily um, or it's Kevin um, or it's the you know uh it's it's um you know uh any anything else that she's experienced we've seen this side of nora that's desperate to believe in something and being so close to um or, or being not so close to matt i mean her brother who has this profound certainty of belief i think is a 
is probably a big part of, of why they were, uh, why they've been alienated. Um, because it, his belief and his certainty is a reminder of what she'll never have. And the reason she's so upset when she tells the story is because she desperately wants to be that little girl that's just enjoying the balloon, the, the excuse me, the ball being bounced around. But she knows that she's always going to be the usher. She knows that she can't be anything else. It's just who she is. And as much as she tries to believe in something and to find meaning and to just let everyone play with the ball, she can't. And she's always going to be the one to deflate the ball and put up the poster um, and, and pull off a sting operation. And I think what we see from her in the next two episodes is going to be very interesting because it, it, I mean, it, it could be, um, it could be very consistent and show her yet again, um, unable to, to, to meaningfully engage with a world she doesn't understand, or this could be a huge moment for her where she grows, um, and, and takes a, a leap of faith as it were. So your thoughts. Yeah, that's a great takeaway. My initial as I was watching it, my initial takeaway there was just that when she talked about the person deflating the ball, right, it, it really tied in, for me at least, to her role at the DST, right? And some of the things she she's done recently. I mean, initially when she said that, my mind was immediately drawn to when she slaps that poster up in, um, it was episode one or two of this season, and she kind of deflates the ball on... Yep. Everyone who believed that man on the tower departed, right? And right. it just, you know, it, it seemed like it just it seemed like a direct parallel there. Um, so and that, I don't that, think it's because uh, you know I think she wants people to think that it's because she values truth and objectivity and science. And I think the real reason is that she doesn't want other people to have something she doesn't have. Yeah, that's. That's a good takeaway, honestly, um, and kind of, kind of calls back to their fight in the hotel room, right, where Kevin mm -hmm. talks about how Nora is is still kind of struggling with the departure of, of her children, and she doesn't want people to forget, right? That's that's who she is. And I think, yeah, that's the like, the de that's a really really great point, actually, and and I think you've you've kind of nailed it there, because. The departure for Nora was a universe-shattering event. It's the worst thing that will ever happen to her. And I think from her perspective, it doesn't get to be cool and special for someone else. It doesn't get to be this, this awesome thing or this affirming thing for yeah. anyone else. Because for her, it was the destruction of her entire life. And when, whenever she sees someone trying to make it special or profit from it, or, or find meaning in it, it's infuriating because the only thing in the departure for her um, is, is the inexplicable loss of, of her family. Yeah, very much so. And that also kind of explains her trajectory with Kevin, right, at the end of this, mm -hmm. um, at the end of Good Day Melbourne, when she yeah. kind of, you know, blows up and, and leaves. Um, well, I guess he leaves. But uh, one other and it's thing. just how dense Kevin is to this too. I mean, just how how cruel he is 
in what he says to her. Oh yeah. About going to be with her kids. I mean, this is, this is lost on him. He's, he's just as self-absorbed as she is. Yeah, very much so. Um, and you know, one other thing about this episode that I noticed about Nora is I don't want to say she's off rails so much as, I mean, she's really, I don't think we've seen her in this kind of mental state before. Right. I mean, she's, maybe we have, maybe we have seen her in this mental state and more so she's just set on going to be a part of this, uh, this radiation machine. Right. And that's very much what she is going to do this episode. And there's kind of no consideration otherwise. Yeah, actually, hold that there. Do you think she's going to get in the in the box? Oh yeah, I I have no doubt at this point uh, that she is she is headed to uh, to get in the box. I I would be shocked. I don't see how it's possibly a sting. What else could it be at this point? Do you have any idea what else what else you think she might be intending to do? I don't know. Um, she may want to watch. She may want to observe them. She may want to. She may want to wait until the last second to decide. Like we we talked about in uh, in, in Good Day Melbourne. Uh, I I don't know. I I, I don't. I, I still don't think that. I still think that she. And I don't want to. You know. I don't want to say something untoward about suicide and like the mental state or the emotional state that's required to be there because it, you know I'm not even remotely qualified to but the whatever it was that we've seen from saw from Lori in this episode which could almost be described as a kind of peace agreed very much so I don't think Nora has that and I don't know. I don't. I don't know if it's strange to say it'd be out of character for her because it's you know suicide's out of character for everyone. Um, but I don't know. Um, I, I think that uh, just from what we see saw in the first episode, the flash forward, I think she's a, she's alive when this when this whole thing goes down. Um, but I don't know. That's a it's a good question. I, I'd probably defer to your judgment that she does end up getting in the machine, but uh, maybe it's. Uh, who knows? Maybe it, it doesn't work for her, um, which I, I, you know, foreseeably would, would, would not be great for her mental state. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I feel like, I feel like both Nora and Lori are very much in the same mental state right now in that I, I like your description of peace, right? To me, it seems like where, where Nora is heading, which is, you know, to this machine, um, it seems like this is what she wants to do. And she seems very sure of herself. You know, it's, um, let's call back to the conversation in the van where Lori talks about, um, you know, it being a way to kill yourself, right. Or a fancy way to kill yourself. And she says, no, mm -hmm. and then yeah. kind of calls back to the departure and how those people, those, uh, sons and daughters of the scuba instructor who died there at peace because they have a uh, finality there. Um, but it seems to me that Nora doesn't believe this is that she's going to be killing herself, right? I, I think she really believes in the idea of the machine. I, I don't I don't think she actually thinks she's jumping in there to uh, to get melted into nothing. I, I think she believes that she's going to 
uh, be sent so wherever she, the departures were. Is she forcing herself to believe? And if so, is that the same thing as belief? Uh, I don't know. That's That I feel like that's tougher to say. I, I think she genuinely believes it. Whether or not she's forcing herself is kind of splitting hair, it's, hairs, it seems like, to me. Uh, because a belief is just kind of a belief, right? You either believe it or you don't. I guess there is to some extent to be, you know, being able to force yourself, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think she, she might like herself more as someone who could believe in things. Um, I, I do uh, just um, as as uh, as an aside here, um, I do want to say I do think that the machine, whatever the machine does, I think it does the same thing as the the sudden departure. Um, really, we haven't okay. really. Yeah, I, I don't know. We've discussed this a whole lot, but um, all that happened, according to humans on Earth, and during the sudden departure, was that people disappeared. Um, they could have been vaporized. They could have been taken to a different time, a different dimension, a different place, a different reality or planet. But to uh, you know, to us, all that happened is they they disappeared, and if these physicists feel that they've been able to recreate the exact conditions present at the time of a departure, then I think it, it, it does do the same thing the departure did. I just think that people probably don't have a, a, a solid framework for what the departure was and that, sure, it's totally possible they went somewhere. It's also totally possible they were simply vaporized. And that if, if that's what happened during the departure, then that's what this machine does. Or it's, you know, I, I think that I, I'm not sure that that's a that I've clarified that exactly or that it's super relevant. But um, I think it's it's worth pointing out in terms of my predictions for the show that I don't think the machine is like fake is what I mean to say. I don't think it's a, it's a, a scam. I think it probably just does whatever the departure did. That's disappointing. You know, you pitched a couple episodes ago the idea that the machine is not a machine, right? That it's right. Uh, it's a gun, glass of bleach, um, you know, a, uh, a yeah. knife in the back. It's just death, essentially. Did I not mention that before? It, when I say machine, I mean Holy Wayne. Oh, all right. It's um, it's Holy Wayne. All those, like, the big, like, uh, semi-truck they have at the end, <laughs> that's, like, it's a red herring. It's just Holy Wayne, and he's, like, in his little chair inside there just waiting. Oh, man, he's just, just waiting. waiting to give some hugs. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really like the idea that it's not a machine. I've, I've held on to that as kind of tinfoil hat as it is. And I, I really like the idea that, that those boxes are something else that we see at the end, that semi-truck, and that really it's, it's nothing. And that it's, you know, it's like just poison, similar to what it's Kevin It's interesting drank. that you noticed that, because Ellie thought the same thing, that those boxes were significant. I just saw them as like, okay, well, that's like the pieces they use to put it together. But you think the boxes are significant? I, I don't know if they're significant. I'm kind of hoping they're a red herring, right? I'm hoping that the machine still isn't real and that it's a, uh, it's like a, you know, a glass of poison essentially. And that when Nora shows up, she walks into a room and there's just like a, you know, a container of bleach in the center but, of the room and they're like, drink up and that's it. <laughs> and like, I think mostly because that would just be an amazing, like, shocking plot twist and i could link everyone to the podcast where we called it and <laughs> but then what happens she just leave right and then we get a million views and become youtube famous 
<laughs> Why would you know? we get views? This we is supposed to have video. It's just audio. But, uh, I'm really holding on to that SoundClouds. idea. <laughs> really holding on to that idea, but um, but it, yeah. it seems less and less likely, especially as the episode progresses to its end. Um, which, by the way, I, we can talk about this in the behind the scenes, I guess. But I really love the design, the kind of uh, the two plots and starting them, and then kind of progressing them equally throughout the episode. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, that was fun. I, I do like that because uh, it, it that maybe have been just the best way to do it when you think about um, how they want to reveal these different yeah. things. Yeah, it created a lot of mystery. Um, let's yeah. let's continue jumping around and let's jump back to Grace's house where, um, goodness, I mean, we get all the confirmations here in this episode. For yeah. me personally, there was a lot of closure in this episode. So we get an explanation on the ship, right? And mm -hmm. for listeners who don't remember, it's the, the boat they're building out of the church that Kevin Garvey uh, wanders out and kind of a, a Garvey senior wanders out in kind of a daze and says, oh, because the flood. And we had kind of wondered on this podcast if, if they were aware of the idea of the flood or if, you know, he was just projecting. And we learned today that he was just projecting, right? Um, the mm -hmm. ship was going to be built for Grace's son as kind of a, I want to say it was like a funeral, a funeral casket of some sort. A monument. Sort. Yeah, a monument. That was it. Um, because he liked boats so much. And so they were stripping the church and building a boat. That kind of clears up any sort of confusion we had with that scene. If it was real life, if, you know, he was hallucinating, if those people were there. Turns out, uh, Alcum's Razor, it was all real. Yeah, I mean that was. Uh, I think I think I used the phrase Occam's razor before because I I sucked you in to like a discussion of of dog tranquilizers and hallucinations. Oh, it was and, we were in uh, there deep. I mean, we were screen capping and um, really and analyzing like, oh, like yeah, the doors just... on the house. We got right. in there pretty deep, <laughs> and it, not going to get that afternoon back. Honestly. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> So I enjoyed getting that confirmation, though. That that was really pleasing uh, to me to kind of get some explanation behind that whole that whole scene, because it was weird that they were building a boat. Right. And it really yeah. did. It created uh, this confusion amongst us as kind of uh, um, close viewers, you know, people who are watching the show very closely as to why. Why are they doing this? Are they aware of a flood coming? You know? Um, but right. it turns out it just happens to be coincidence, which is really interesting, right? The idea of coincidence in this show in that a lot of, a lot of things that have just kind of turned out to be coincidence. Right. And it, it feels like kind of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A metaphor for, uh, for faith almost, right. Is that a lot of things just turn out to be coincidence and then they create this faith. I think we talked about this a few episodes ago, right? Yeah, this is exactly where I was going to go because it, it it it's codified really well in when um, John's talking to Lori and he he's the one who offers this line that explains it and says, you know, her kids came here to make a monument to him and then this crazy old man shows up and thinks it's a part of his flood story. Yep. And he drops this line that just is is 
incredibly incisive and perfectly, uh, I think, explains a fatal flaw in the whole idea of a belief system, let alone competing belief systems or fundamentalist belief systems. When he says, if I don't believe his story, I can't believe mine. Yeah. And that, I mean, he's, he's sort of acknowledging a broader idea here that we're all sort of, you know, we're, we're lost and we, we all have, we're all, we're all starting at the same difficult to, to parse uh, a point in the, in the timeline here uh, in, in real life. And there's no, uh, there's no presupposition that's going to make that position any easier. And I, I think it's a, it's a really great description of, of, of one, why humans seek out faith and they need faith, uh, but also why it's fragile and why it's interdependent too. Even, even different kinds of faith and different beliefs are, are, are interdependent, not independent. Yeah, very much so. So I, I really kind of enjoy, I mean, you know, we got the explanation on the boat and it not only did it turn out to be a, a bit of a red herring to us, but it also added a lot of, um, you know, just kind of another underlying layer to the show, right? Another commentary, social commentary on the world. Really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we kind of fast forward a little bit and we get a little bit of uh, the Wizard of Oz, right? In that they're going to yeah. send Kevin to uh, to Emerald City or the hotel, for instance. And uh, they each have a little bit of something that they want. I'm just going to cover them real quick here. So uh, Grace, actually, let's start from the top, or I think the order that they're given in the show, and that's Garvey Sr. once. Now, I'm a little confused here, and I want to see what your take was. My take was Garvey Sr. wants the song that Kevin has to sing to get back to the real world, and that's the song that Kevin's that Garvey Sr. is going to sing to stop the flood. Um, but I also thought it could be that he wants Kevin to meet up with Christopher Sunday, who is apparently here, which doesn't make a lot of sense. We'll get to that later, and get the song from him. Which which one do you think it is? Yeah, so this is interesting because this sort of uh, uh, makes a commentary on the fact that maybe Kevin doesn't know what the hotel is because we obviously don't know. I mean, we have, we have some ideas about, you know, it's either the afterlife or a purgatory or simply a place people go if they if they if sort of have unfinished business. Um, but it it's clear that he doesn't know if he believes that Christopher Sunday is there. Um, and I do think just to to answer the first part of the question. Yeah. Yes. Um, Garvey senior still believes that completing this song line is the key to stopping a flood. And he needs Christopher Sunday to teach Kevin the song so that Kevin can teach his dad. So you think he wants the song that from Christopher Sunday, right? Because we also know that Kevin sings, um, you know, Simon and Garfunkel greatest hits to get back from the hotel. Which I honestly like homeward bound should be more than enough to stop a flood. Like that's what I would you don't assume. need like a whole song line. Like <laughs> that's like and then like a like a few bars from like Bridge Over Troubled Water for good measure, but like you're already yeah, and you're set. I don't know, you're 
you're more than enough there. So, um, but I think he doesn't really know. Uh, he doesn't, or, or maybe he does know what it is. And maybe we just haven't been given a, a, a really in your face example of, of no, exactly f- what it is. I feel like he has to know because he had, I mean, he obviously can, can mentally recall um, what, what took place there. Right. Because he, he had the memory of it to tell John or Michael about the whole experience. Right. So he has to have an idea of who was there. Mm-hmm. Um, not to get us too off topic here, but this episode kind of pitches the idea that he hasn't gone back since the first time we saw him go, right? Or the second time, I guess, at the end of um, season two, because he seems kind of unsure about going back. It, it almost makes me wonder if we got it wrong about him ripping the bag off, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, I don't necessarily know that we knew they weren't correct, but I don't think we got it wrong. Um, I, I thought it was, it, it definitely wasn't clear from the beginning that he was telling the truth. And um, before he, before uh, Nora catches him, it's not even clear that he's, he's, you know, stopping uh, before he dies. So um, yeah, I, I think it's, I, I think it's safe. I think it's safe to say he hasn't been back. Uh, we could be wrong. Um, the, the, he could have gone, you know, but I, I think it's probably safe to say, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if, uh, he's actually telling the truth and he hasn't been following through with, uh, with these, um, suicides. Yeah. That, that was kind of my takeaway as well, uh, which is a bit of a 180 for me because originally I know when we talked about it, I felt like both of us kind of agreed that he had been going back and for what reason we were kind of unaware and you know, um, unsure. So a bit of a change. I I enjoyed it though. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so back on track here, Garvey senior wants a song from Kevin to sing, to stop the flood. Uh, John wants to Kevin to tell Evie that she was loved. And then, (laughs) yeah, Grace, uh, Grace wants to know where her kid's shoes are, which I think this was probably one of the more interesting ones. Uh, John's was kind of whatever, whatever, and that, that's why I kind of sighed there. I, I didn't necessarily enjoy that wrinkle, um, but Grace's was really interesting to me, right? The, the fact that they didn't have shoes on anymore, mm-hmm. and she's just really curious, like, what happened to your shoes? Um, you know, it, it seems like, again, another kind of human response, right? Something that you would wonder, and it would be an unanswered question that you that you couldn't get the answer to. And so right. I, I enjoyed her. I, I don't think there was much more to take away from it beyond that, um, beyond the fact that it's I kind think, of unexplained, right? Yeah. I mean, I just think it's her way of, of, of you know, getting confirmation that it's real. Yeah, very possible, right? Um, it's interesting, though. I actually liked John. I liked that scene. That was one of my favorites. I, I liked that line a lot. Um, really? I don't, I don't know. I don't know because it contrasts so well with John in season two, who is just desperate to get his daughter back. And we learned throughout season two, like at, the, at least at the end of season two, we we were reacquainted with with Evie, and um, th- part of this season that she really did hate her dad, and she didn't feel anything for her family. And I think if you're a parent and your child hates you 
I don't think there's any way you can blame them for that. Because even if they're wrong, it's still your fault. I mean, you're responsible for them. And yeah. he has to feel a, a really profound sense of responsibility for the fact that he he uh, neglected her or pushed her away or treated her poorly and caused her to join this group that, that results in her dying. And uh, I think that there is something very simple and very sweet in the fact that um, he doesn't want answers because he doesn't think he deserves them. And he, I don't think he cares either. He, The only thing he's concerned about is the thing he should have been concerned about all along, which is making sure that Evie knows that her father loves her. And I I like that scene. I think that was... Uh, I think that was good. All right. I, I like your takeaway there. I, I like the takeaway. It seemed a little cliche to me at the moment. I don't want to jam you up or anything. I didn't, you know, you jam me up a little bit there. I'm not trying to jam right. you up. That's all right. It's all right. Um, but in the moment, I didn't love the writing. Even now, I don't necessarily love the writing. It's just, oh, I don't know. It's just, so, it's, mm, it sounds like. Tweet him, man. It sounds like a Vanessa Carlton song, right? Is Jesus that, Christ. Is that her name? <laughs> I or, think so. Michelle Branch, they're like the same person, but I think they are the same person. I think they might be. It just I don't know. It sounds like a song that you know, like the refrain. Then there'd be like some swirling piano in the background. I just I wasn't <laughs> in love with it. All right, I wasn't I wasn't in love with it. We get some great okay. confirmation on the money shredding, which was just wonderful. Um, we yeah. were we were kind of close. I went back and listened to uh, G'day Melbourne. Because I was curious, like, how close we got to getting this right. And our takeaway was he was shredding the money because they were they were just trying to provide a service to people. And, mm -hmm. the, you know, the idea that um, that they were just trying to help people when, in all honesty, he was shredding the money because what they were doing wasn't real. So we got it half right. Right. I mean, I'll they, count it. You know, I'm counting it. Exactly. Let's you know, pat ourselves on the back. We were close. Um, so we, you know, just the idea that they were lying to people. And I really like that, uh, that reasoning because it ties in well with his character, right? He was, he was someone who, uh, as fire chief in miracle, you know, would, would kind of expose the, the, um, the posers. Right. And yeah, uh, well, would burn their houses down. But it, yeah, you know, expose, burn their houses down. You have harsher language for it than I do, but that's OK. Right. Um, Seemed a little bit forgiving there. Well, sometimes tactics. It's like, I tell, you know, it's like I tell my four year old, sometimes you got to burn a house down. And yeah, wow, there's really nothing good thing wrong to tell with your that. kids. Sometimes, you know, I tell them both. Sometimes as long as they know like which when the right time is and if oh, they don't overdo it. I've made it very clear. So we're not going to go into detail <laughs> on the podcast about when it's OK to set someone else's on fire. But, you know. Right. Um, but anyway, so so I I felt like I felt like this tied in really well to his character. Right. And just kind of a, a nice tie back to his kind of previous character. Right. The previous John mm -hmm. before he's changed. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I enjoy getting an answer. Uh, to that because it was something that uh, had been kind of bothering me. Yeah, so let's. Uh, I want to make. Uh, let's. We've got about um, probably fifteen minutes or so left. Yeah, and I want to talk about. I want to close this out talking about Lori, and because um, this is 
Amy Brenneman is is fantastic. And you want to close it out talking about the scuba side? You see what wow. I did there? You see what I did? Wow. Oh, We're I've been edit waiting. I've been waiting 45 minutes to drop that. Oh my god. It's like scuba and suicide. Right. I, you really I got don't them. need to explain it. It's a scuba side. I understand completely. Um okay. So um Somber is out, but let's uh let's let's talk about Lori anyways. Yeah, um, and her scuba side. So uh first i have a weird thought i i had this is the first time in the show she's been referred to as lorelei yeah that was really that was throughout the entire episode that was just kind of a thing going on that was really nice i liked that there was there was a there was a kind of sweetness between garvey senior and Lori, something that hasn't been explored in this show very much and i that was really nice whatever that was and however authentic that was. But um, Amy Burneman has been incredible for three seasons now, and Laurie is such a fascinating character that uh, I, I do want to spend some time talking about her and the journey she's taken through the show and how we say goodbye to her and her character in this episode. And um, so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts first on... Um, uh, just, just go, go broad. Actually, how do you think, uh, how do you think it went ending Lori's uh, story on the leftovers, ending her tenure? Yeah. So, I really like your description earlier this episode. She seemed very much at peace, and I felt like that was the the impression that they're trying to give us. Right? She even gets that call from. Ah, uh, shoot! What's her name? Her daughter. From Tommy and Jill. Jill. Tommy and Jill. She gets the call from Tommy and Jill, and they kind of reminisce about the old days, right? And the thing to me that was significant about this call is it is, as far as we can tell, was before the Great Departure, right? And so, you know, it was kind of a callback to how things were before everything got so ruined, right? Like there was, you know, they were just, they were reminiscing about this old videotape and this kind of like goofy kids TV show that she used to love watching. And it was just a callback to normal. Right. And it, you know, and now nothing can be normal anymore since, since the departure happened. And, um, it just, it seemed like what she needed right before she, she kind of took the, the final plunge and, um, and so, yeah, well, actually, uh, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. And, uh, I like that thought. I just wanted to, to jump in because, um, I was reading the Hollywood reporter interview that Amy Brenneman did okay. about this episode. And she says something really interesting there and it's very revealing because she doesn't seem to have like a, a solid, robust idea of like the motivations that Lori has here. And, that interests me a lot because if that's the case, then this is really open to interpretation and, and what, where her head is and what she's doing is very much open to like what we can project onto it. Um, but being asked about, um, throwing herself in the water at the end of the episode, um, she says, I don't entirely know. I mean, that call that's so heartbreaking. And as a mom, that was very easy for me to tap into, you hear your adult children in a happy space and they're close. 
I guess on the one hand, that would keep you in the world. On the other hand, it would be like, that's all. And there's a sense that, and that's the end of the quote, by the way, but there's, there's a sense here that like on one hand, I'm watching this and from my perspective, being about the same age as, as uh, Lori's kids in the show, that this phone call would be the thing that would keep her from, from doing it. Right. And yeah, certainly. I mean, that's, that's the idea. But at the same time, she introduces a different concept here being, you know, Amy Burnham does being a mother herself and being around that age that there was almost like a sense of finality and a sense of like, my work here is done and like, I'm not needed. And so I don't need, you know, we, from everything they've shown us with Lori, I think the, the message was clear that she's been suffering for a really long time. And I think in this episode, I think she got, I think she saw that phone call as a gift that this was a, a confirmation for her that she didn't have to suffer anymore, that her children um, were, were going to be okay and that they had each other. And, um, you know, before that, she sort of makes the rounds with everyone, all these people that are close to her and doesn't do her therapist thing and doesn't try to, to psychoanalyze or to push people in the direction she thinks they, they would be best for them to go but she just acts as the sounding board, right? She just takes in all of Nora's ideas and all of Kevin's ideas, and she just lets them um, really use her um, to feel better about themselves and to feel better about their decisions. And I don't know. It, it's This is a very, very, very hard scene um, for, me to, for me to dissect, and uh, it's an incredibly emotional episode, and it's a really difficult thing to watch, and it's it's even more difficult to break it down and try to understand um, with the limited amount of information we're given. Why, why is this the choice that uh, that's made? Yeah. I don't know. You know, I like that take certainly the idea that she's not needed anymore. Um, but this, the part that kind of rings in my head and, and I think contrasts well with the final call still is the conversation she has with Kevin. Uh, I don't remember what the line is exactly, but something to the extent of nothing will ever be normal again. Right. Um, I can't, I can't remember what the exact line is, but. Um, well, she says the first part of that, which I do think is, you're right, is important. Is she's when Kevin asks, is Nora gone? And she says, we're all gone. That's it. That's the one. Sorry. I couldn't put my finger on it. We're all gone. Yes. Um, you know, it, it kind of works with the theory, right? That nothing has ever been the same since the departure. And I, to me, I feel like that's maybe that's where her peace comes from is that she, she's accepted that nothing's ever going to be the same. Right. And that's why she's able to kind of roll off the boat at the end after she talks to her kids, kind of reminisces one last time about the good old days and, um, and just comes to peace with the idea that, uh, no matter you know how hard she tries to make things better with therapy and things like that, that um, that it's not going to be, you know, everyone's gone, and that it's so you think it's in some respects, okay. or or at least in other words, this is her not deciding to die, but acknowledging that everyone's been dead for seven years. 
Yeah, I, I like it. Yeah, exactly. That everyone sort of died, you know, once the departure happened, right? That this was such a such a, a great and momentous uh, sadness, you know, uh, that everyone has been dead since then. And I feel like this is just her accepting it. Uh, but I like your take, too. I don't know if there's any real indication of either way. I mean, you just read the interview now, and it, it seems like not even she is aware of uh, the the ideas behind it. I think the thing that comes through strongest in Amy Burnham's performance here at the end is a kind of iron resolve that we see from Lori, where she knows she can't falter for for even a moment or she'll lose her nerve and she won't be able to go through with this and you can see that she maybe sees this phone call as a final test as to whether she can she can answer this call she very much wants to she wants to hear from her kids again and and you can see how happy she is that they have each other and that they're so much closer than she and kevin or, or, you know, Nora and Matt or anyone else on the show. I mean, that, that is the closest I think, relationship we've seen is Jill and Tommy. And they just, they have such, such affection for each other. And I think she saw that as a kind of, uh, as a kind of test. And I think we see it in this, this great, you know, from the bottom of the boat up uh, to her face, if I remember the shot correctly, um, towards the end of the call where she's just, uh, this very naturalistic performance. She's just, you know, sort of trying to hold it together in this phone call and still, um, you know, smile and laugh and make her voice sound normal, but it still yeah. sounds a little bit weird. It just uh, phenomenal. And and frankly, you know, still like like I said, I know I've said it several times, but I think still uh, a difficult scene to watch, um, probably for a lot of people. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, I like that take. That is. Uh, you know, I, I feel like that's that's a that's a good alternative take there, and uh, both both seem equally likely to me. Um, one thing I do want to, you know, let's let's go into. Do you have anything else to say on Laurie's kind of projection as a uh, you know character arc as a whole? It's kind of interesting, right? Because she has really done um, her character has really gone a lot of directions, right? I mean, she's. She's kind of fallen mm-hmm. from, you know, a, a, um, a functioning, you know, citizen with a, a broken marriage to a cult member to kind of, you know, a recovering cult member <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and then functioning citizen again. And now she's uh, kind of given up on it all. So uh, maybe given up isn't the right wording, but she's, uh, she's killing herself. So a kind of interesting plot arc. Do you have anything else to add there? And if not, we can jump into behind the episode. Um, yeah, there's there's a couple th- a couple more things here. So um, in the that's that's a great point, by the way. And, and Amy Burnham made a similar point in the behind the episode, um, sort of post episode two to four minute uh, little mini documentaries they do at the end. Um, and I thought her word choice is great because she refers to Lori when we first meet her in the show as uh, as an animal and i think that's it's such a a great description because when we first meet lori she is she just is this kind of primal elemental force and she spends you know 
literally 99% of the season not speaking. Yeah. And there is, she still manages to be one of the best performers in the show. And we've seen her grow so much and seen her try to, you know, pull her family back together. And it, it seems that at first that she's the one who pulled them apart. And, you know, we learned that, that obviously that's not uh, the whole story. And, um, watching her go from, uh, throwing Jill's lighter in the storm drain to this where, um, Jill is happy just to call up her mom and ask her about an old video. I think yeah. that's, you know, I think if you ask, you know, uh, a, a parent in this situation, that's, that should be the measure of her character's growth is that she was able to pull this family back together. If only just for Tommy and Jill. And that's, uh, I think that's a, that's a huge thing. And we've seen her, her character go through uh, a lot. Um, I will point out, uh, I thought it was a really very dark and um, foreboding touch that they had her say throughout this episode several times, I quit in relation to smoking, but obviously not only in relation to smoking. That was some oh, interesting snap. foreshadowing. I did not even catch that. Wow. I'm, I'm glad you caught that because that is, that is great. Um, some, um, yeah, some great foreshadowing there. Wow. And I think also, and this sort of just occurred to me, but it's very interesting that the first time that she gives the lighter to Nora so she can light her cigarette, she freaks out when Nora won't give it back. And when she lets Kevin light his cigarette, she says, you can keep it. And this could be because she wants Kevin to have it, but it could also be that she hadn't made up her mind yet when she was in the car. Um, and when she's at the farm, she's decided. Yeah, so my takeaway was she wants Kevin to have it, right? She wants it to stay within kind of the family unit that, that uh, as you just said, uh, that she kind of yeah. constructed back together. Uh, I like the idea that maybe she hadn't come to terms with it yet, but I don't know. I feel like from early on, her path is set, right? She's yeah. She doesn't have anything else to do, so she waits around with with Nora to see it to its end, right? I mean, yeah. I think she had made up her mind from the very beginning. Uh, the lighter I think she wants to give to Kevin as uh, maybe a way to remember her, maybe just, you know, keep it within the family and because, you know, Joe right. gave it to her. Uh, but I, I think from early on, like she's that. made her decision. So we only have uh, a few minutes left here, but um, and I'm okay spending most of the time on Lori here, but I, I want to get your thoughts at the end here on the scene between Kevin and Lori, because this is a, this is a huge scene. This is uh, a goodbye for them. And um, you know, maybe we can talk next week more about what it means for Kevin. And, you know, cause we're going to, you know, obviously next week is going to be about him, but um, I just want to kind of get your, your take um, briefly on, on how you think this scene went. Yeah. So this particular scene, I really enjoyed, right? Like I thought the writing was just a plus here. Um, the little anecdotes that they were kind of trading back and forth um, just really reminded me of like a conversation I'd have with my wife um, about, you know, like just dumb shit that we've done <laughs> or ruined for the kids. 100%. Right. And then like maybe not told the other one. 
Um, right. And so it, right. I don't know that that really struck home with me. I, I felt like the writing was just on point. I agree. It seemed it seemed very reminiscent of a goodbye um, at the time. I took it, and this was kind of interesting. I felt like they flipped it on me a little bit, but I took it as her saying goodbye to Kevin because she thought he wasn't going to come back from the dead, right? That's that's kind right. of my perception of the scene initially is that she believes that Kevin doesn't have this ability to, uh, to come back to life, and so she's kind of saying her goodbyes and, and whatnot. Um, when in all actuality, it's the, the opposite. Right. It's that she's, mm-hmm. you know, off to uh, off to in her life. And the same thing is true as her conversation with Nora. We get the opposite impression when she tells Nora, I'll see you next week. We think that it's that, that it's Nora yeah. who's the tragic same, figure here. And it's same not. exact it's situation. Right. Yeah. It's we think it's, you know, and we think that. God it's, damn, you know, this it's is Nora. a sad episode. It is really sad in, in that you think everyone else is dying and it turns out to be Lori the whole time. Kind of a. Kind of a great way to flip the whole plot on us there. Yeah, well, this was uh, this was definitely uh, a rough episode for my money. Um, you know, maybe one of the the rougher uh, episodes because it's not just that, that it's sad um, because it was, and it's not just because there's tragedy in it. But this is um, we said goodbye to uh, Lori as a character for this. You know, who we've known for three years now with this show and. Um, it's uh, it's bittersweet that uh, it's all very very slowly like a cruise ship liner crash coming to an end. Yeah, man, I love so, that metaphor. Yeah, so let's um, let's uh, wrap up this uh, farewell to Lori with uh, with some behind the scenes. Um, I know you want to you want to point out some music stuff, so I'll let you get to that. Yeah, just a couple uh, behind the scenes things uh, I want to talk about. Um, uh, the theme, the theme song. This this episode is one eight hundred suicide by Gravediggers, who I I could not spot initially. I called it as Wu Tang Clan, incorrect. Just has RZA from Wu Tang. So shame on me. Of course. And uh, yeah, shame on that. shame on everyone who is in the room, who was incorrectly informed that that is not a Wu Tang Clan. That that was a Wu Tang Clan song, when it was right. not. Really embarrassing. Sure, they're all listening yeah. now. Um, <laughs> And then um, let's talk about the orchestral music during during Lori's uh, first unsuccessful suicide. Right, it's uh, "Wherever I May Roam" by Metallica, and I really love the music choice. I knew it there. was Metallica. Yeah, I didn't know what what the song was, but yeah, that's that was great. It was uh, yeah. a Apocalyptica, a, right? Yeah, and I, I had a bit of a Metallica phase when I was uh, younger. Of course, I would never admit that in public, but uh, so or on I a podcast. Yeah, you know, just on the podcast, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I I recognized it uh, pretty much right off the bat, and it really just oh man, I really enjoyed it. It in man, it's just such a great cover of the song, and really made me uncomfortable as I was watching. Um, just felt yeah. like it kind of fit perfectly. Uh, there was also some uh, Max Richter in the episode mm-hmm. as they've been using him a little bit more this season. Had a friend of mine tell me that it was reminiscent of Westworld, which uh, I see a little bit. Not something I considered initially, but after hearing that, I, I can kind of see some of the uh, the similarities there. Between the score 
in Westworld. Yeah, the score in Westworld and the score in this episode. You, you felt like there were some similarities there. And I have to do uh, some side by sides. Yeah, we might have or to maybe look get into some, like, it. Track comparison or something because I don't. But I don't. I felt like head, Westworld had a decent amount of piano in it, right? And I think that's yes. what he was going for there, in that the Max Richter uh, is, is scores seem to be reminiscent of Westworld. Um, anyways. Yeah, they do just do a great job of, of finding so many different ways to use music um, that are, that are frankly non-traditional and that um, oftentimes don't reinforce a scene directly or obviously at all, but actually put the scene into a greater contrast that just makes it all the more unsettling. Like this, the initial scene with the Radiohead, or not Radiohead, with the, the Metallica cover is just, yeah. Uh, it's made even more unsettling with the, with the music. Yeah, very, very much so. And then uh, from an acting perspective, I feel like there were a few standouts. Uh, we, we are just always shouting out Carrie Coon on this podcast. Yeah. And again, I mean, girl in, needs an Emmy in the van. Let's just talk about the van scene. She looked dead inside in that scene. Like yeah. there was, and not dead inside in necessarily a bad way, but well, I guess in a bad way, but she, she had this resolve. Like I am, this is what I'm going to do and that's, what's going to happen. And there is nothing that's going to stop me. And I mean, just top notch. And then of course you have the, the, uh, the baseball story with the inflatable, yeah. um, the inflatable beach ball and just the emotion on her face and the sadness that kind of accompanies that story, obviously very well done. Um, so I, you know, she was a standout. It's not even just the, you know, not even just like that performance by itself, but it's also like how she's able to do progression. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, I I don't know if I, I doubt they had any of this stuff planned out beforehand, you know, knowing they just had the book at the start of this, but you know, um, this is sort of like if you told someone like you're going to start this off as a character um, who is so existentially broken that you pay prostitutes to shoot you in the chest while wearing oh, yeah. a, uh, a bulletproof <laughs> vest. And then what we're going to need you to do is four years later, you're going to have to make that somehow more tragic. And <laughs> like, yeah, great point that's unbelievable that that she's able to that it hasn't gotten stale that we haven't just gotten like oh Nora's sad or like she's able to keep this um keep that performance so fresh and so dynamic that um you don't really know what to expect from her whether she's she's managing it and coping with it today and she's sort of you know manic and on the hunt or um like in this episode where she just seems to be in this perpetual state of of anger and um i don't know who gives a shit right she seems to not really care yeah yeah certainly um and then you know outside of carrie coon obviously uh we've mentioned her a few times amy brennan uh does just a great job uh, especially in the final scene where she kind of captures um you know how exactly how i believe you'd feel as a parent right having to to take that call and then knowing that you're about to uh about to go on a great scuba adventure right right and contrast that with just the like absolute like thug of her scene at the farmhouse when she's just like yeah i drugged him i thought they weren't gonna let me talk to you so i put him to sleep 
like just that her whole like her posture her attitude like god that was great like and you could see how like kevin wasn't even really all that surprised like he knows his ex-wife like he there's like some part of him that's like yeah it's pretty standard yeah certainly yeah um no that that was great as well um from a direct a director standpoint we have carl franklin He's directed uh, three previous episodes: BJ and the AC, Guest, mm-hmm. and Off Ramp. I know, I know. Guest is a, a personal favorite on this podcast. Um, yes, and I, you know, Guest's I felt great. like um, I, I felt like the episode was well directed. Uh, I really loved the ending. Um, well, not so much um, Lori killing herself, so much as the splashing, and the silent credits. Right. Yes. That, that for me was just a plus right she rolls off and then no music no nothing just splashing and i felt like that really drove the point home we've seen other shows do this before so it's not it's not necessarily a new idea but i really loved it and it just it drove everything home for me and also kind of made killed the mood on the night yeah it's really like i i is if there's anybody who's like rolling straight into silicon valley like god bless you i don't i don't know how like anyone's going from this show to that um but the um i I think it's worth noting that the the ending credits do provide a kind of respectful contrast to the opening credits with the gravediggers track yeah certainly Um, that's a good point those kind of bookend each other um really well so it's that's yeah I don't know. This this is a rough episode. I have I have really uh, like mixed feelings about this one as a whole and like really future rewatches. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure why. Like it kind of like um, I don't know. It just hit me different than than some of the other ones we've seen. There've been plenty of sad episodes in the leftovers. This one just kind of hit me different. Interesting. Okay. Um. You know, my take kind of remains the same from a ratings perspective, right? In that it's another great episode. And it's going to be hard to compare them, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, it was very sad, and it was reminiscent of season one level of sad, right? I, I feel like I've said this yes. a few times in the show, and that season one was immensely more sad than season two of this show. And it seems like season three has kind of returned to form, or maybe a combination of both, right? We've gotten the sadness of season one along with the mystery and the action of season two, Um this episode was just a lot of sadness, but I loved it. And you know, it, I'm excited for next week. And, uh, you I, know, too. I, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, it's not surprising that I loved it since I made it through, uh, season one of the show and loved every episode there. Yeah. And, um, uh, a quick final thought about the scenes from next week. Um, if you pause it and, and go through the scenes, um, it looks like Kevin's back in the suit. So I think we're definitely Uh-oh. going to the hotel. Uh-oh. We're homeward bound. Spoil anything. It could be like uh, if, if the trials just keep like regressing and going downwards, this time he's just going to have to get like like five baskets in that like arcade free throw game. <laughs> and like that'll get him back. Uh, but like he has to do it in like less than 30 seconds. And sing like show me the meaning of being lonely by the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> And like that's how he gets back this time, and then, then next time it's just like some Taylor Swift song, and time after that it's like the ABCs. Just keeps getting he easier. 
like you yeah you you uh, placed backstreet boys at a higher on the hierarchy than taylor swift i thought that yeah. was an interesting artistic no, choice there that's pretty standard i mean who doesn't love bsb right yeah wow it's uh worthy of its own acronym that's um, yeah yeah i mean we're not talking like about nstink here you've exposed yourself to some extent especially you seem to be participating in a kind of boy band rivalry from 20 years ago well, i'm not so that's really interesting I mean, a rivalry kind of implies that, like, they're on the same level, and everyone knows that, like, BSB is top-notch and stink. I mean, it's in their name. They stink. So, so, so guys, we're going to be starting a new podcast next year. Um, it's not going to be at all it's about gonna boy bands. It's going to be about bands. boy bands. Uh, oh, at all. We can cut that, and I'll, I'll, and I'll take it from here. It's going to be about boy so, bands. So, yeah, um, we're going to have, like, a... a Maybe maybe we'll let Adam like have like an episode all to himself on like um like Thursday afternoons and he can talk about boy bands, do oh, like yeah. a special like ninety eight degrees episode, like a where are they now kind of thing. <laughs> like I'd ever um, listen to ninety eight degrees. <laughs> again, where are you getting this hierarchy? I have uh, no idea that there was like differing levels of respect for these bands. Oh my gosh. Um so we yeah. are gonna be doing a new podcast starting up this winter You're probably like um, new kids on the block too i mean geez a little little before my time I, <laughs> I don't know enough about this to like to uh uh to poke you anymore i'm, I'm like 98 degrees was the last one i had i'm out now um oh aaron carter you like him <laughs> <laughs> that's the other one i remember all right buddy all right we can edit this <laughs> out it's okay so it's okay um we're going to do a new podcast. It's going to be about politics. It's going to be about TV. It's going to be about movies, culture. Um, it's going to be a talk show format. And, yeah, just a little uh, bit of everything. Yeah, we we hope you guys will join us for it. Um, there's two episodes left in uh, the final season of The Leftovers. Uh, and uh, we hope to see you guys again next week for... Yeah. Uh, the most powerful man in the world and his identical twin brother is that the name of it i think i'm getting that right yeah Yeah, uh, i just made that up in the world and then parentheses and his identical twin brother so this is exciting yeah yeah, i nailed it is what you're saying you you nailed nailed it it. all right we will see you guys next week thanks for listening yep